0: Just two announcements tonight. The first one is that this Saturday night is Daylight Savings Time, so do not forget to set your clocks back, fall back. We actually gain an hour of sleep this time, so uh, though we lose lose sunlight, we gain a little sleep. So don't forget, set your clocks back. And um, the only other announcement is that the Thankful banner has been posted in the hallway as you're heading out towards the outer banner and every year as thanksgiving approaches we always have the thankful banner there and, and there's post-it notes and pens right there on the wall and we ask that you just give thanks to the lord the bible says give thanks to the lord for he is good so the thankful banner is there for you to just put your praises and your thanks whatever on and we can rejoice together and the things that god is doing in our lives so uh, that's it and you can open in your bibles tonight to the book of ephesians chapter one and if you need a Bible, just raise your hand. You guys are good. I never see hands going up. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop saying that, you know. For three and a half years, the disciples of Jesus walked with him and I can only imagine what it was like to be in their shoes, to see the things that they saw and to hear the things that they heard and to be in the very presence, the essence of what life was, to be with Jesus right there. And, you know, and the, the apostles try to capture that in words. I always think of First John, when he says, that which was from the beginning that we have looked upon and our hands have handled of the word of life, you know, and, and they try to describe and put in something a little bit more than words what it was like to be with Jesus for that time and to just experience that quality of life. But prior to Jesus going to the cross and leaving this world, he said one of the most amazing and one of the most shocking things of all the things that he said and did to his disciples. In John's Gospel, the 16th chapter, verse 7, Jesus said to his disciples, It is expedient that I go away. For if I go not away, then the Comforter will not come. But if I go or depart, then I will send him unto you. And Jesus was speaking of, it tells us just a few verses down, that he was speaking of the Holy Spirit that that would come, this Comforter. But I, I can only imagine what it was like for the disciples as they sat there and listened to Jesus speak those words. And I wonder if they heard him correctly, if it resonated within them when he said, It is expedient or absolutely necessary that I go away. Because if they had heard it, then probably it would have been Peter that would have chimed in. And said, no, 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 Lord. It is not expedient that you go away. In fact, Lord, we don't want you to go away. You're saying it's absolutely necessary. We're saying it's expedient that you stay, you know. Here they have Jesus right with them. How is it that he can say to them that it's absolutely necessary that I leave you? And the only way that that can be true is if Jesus, knowing that he will depart, is going to replace himself with something that is better. Because otherwise it isn't expedient at all. We would want Jesus with us. How often have we wished, prayed that Jesus would just show up by our bedside as we pray or alongside of us when we're in that situation and we think, Lord, if only you were here with me now. And yet Jesus said, no, it's better for you that I'm not here. Why? Because Jesus said, if I go, then I will send the Holy Spirit. Now, what is this something better, this Holy Spirit? You see, the best that any of the disciples in that day, or for that matter, in this day, the best that any of us could ever have if Jesus was here, physically present on this earth, is an external relationship with God. One where we are external, we're observing appearances, we're hearing words audibly. Our experience is that which is sensual, what we're seeing, what we're hearing, what we're handling. But it can't go any further than that, and that carries with it some incredible limitations. Sadly, most Christians, even in the present day, that is how they relate to God. Their relationship with Him is... Completely external. He's somewhere out there. He must be invoked. He must be somehow manipulated or convinced to draw near to me. I, I, I I don't know how to channel him, but I'm learning. I'm trying to figure it out. And unfortunately, many Christians carry that type of relationship with God, where he's somewhat of an external God. But the reason why it's better, as Jesus said, for him to depart is that the Holy Spirit that he said that he would send after his departure is not an invisible form of Jesus with you externally, but rather the Holy Spirit is the living form of the living Jesus living inside of you. And see, that is far better than having the physical Jesus present with you. To have the Spirit of the living God dwelling within you is far better than the external physical Jesus dwelling with you. Why is that? Three reasons for your consideration. First of all, if Jesus is living in me by the presence of His Holy Spirit, then that allows me to have the mind of Christ. To think like He thinks. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. The writer of the Corinthian epistle writes, and he says that, Well, let me turn there. I usually have these little tabs, and I miss one. Go figure, you know. But, uh, you know, Corinthians, he, he talks of how we have the mind of Christ. In verse 11, he says, For what man knoweth the things of a man, except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the things of God knoweth no man but the Spirit of God. What he's saying is that no one knows you like you, because you are you, you think, you, you exist, and people can interpret you, and they can look at you, but they don't really know you because they're not inside of you. And that's what he's saying, no one knows the things of a man except the Spirit of the man. And he says, even so, the things of God knoweth no man except for the Spirit of God. Nobody really knows God, nobody really knows Christ except for God. Because he's him. And so he says, verse 12, Now we have received, not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us from God. And so the first reason why it's better that Jesus dwells within us than that he's simply with us is because him living inside of us enables us to have the mind of Christ, to actually know his thoughts and to think the way that he thinks. The second reason is because we also can have the power of Christ. In John chapter 14 verse 2, Jesus said to his disciples again, or verse uh, 12 it is, he says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me, the works that I do shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go to my Father." And it's in the same context of which he said before, that when he goes to the Father, he will send the Spirit. And see, when the presence of Christ is dwelling within you, then that gives you access to the power of Christ within your life. We've talked about that in great detail in the past few weeks. Not only the mind of Christ and the power of Christ, but the Spirit living inside of us also gives us the position of Christ. If you're in Ephesians, you can just glance over to chapter 2, verse 6. Paul says to us there that he has raised us up together and he has made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That as those that possess the presence of the Spirit of God within us, as those that are saved and then blood-bought, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, having Jesus Christ living inside of us, that because we are in him, That where he is seated, we also are seated, and therefore we hold his position at the right hand of the Father. Now the glory of being a Christian, of being called by his name, of being in Christ, is not that we have Christ. And it's not that we're with Christ, but it's that we're in Christ. Because an external relationship with God, that benefits us perhaps a little, but you remember what it was like for those disciples when Jesus was with them? They still couldn't get the answers to the questions right. They still couldn't cast out the demons. They still couldn't find power and victory in their own lives in the day of temptation. They could not be benefited by simply having an external relationship with God. It wasn't until God moved into their heart... And took up his residence within their soul that they began to live victoriously. That they began to experience God for who he is and experience life for what it was intended to be. That couldn't happen with an external form of religion. It could only happen as the spirit of God moved in and took up and made his home inside of their hearts. Now as Paul begins in Ephesians, these first three chapters... He spends them telling us what it means and what we have as Christians that are in Christ Jesus. Not simply those that claim a form of relationship or a code of religion, but as those that are in Christ Jesus. What does it mean? And what do we have? Tonight in verses 3 through 8, I want to show you seven things that the Apostle Paul tells us that we have as those that are in Christ christ jesus the first is given to us right there in verse three and that is number one if you're taking notes is that our blessing is secured ephesians chapter one verse three he says blessed be the god and father of our lord jesus christ who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in christ Notice that he says there that he hath blessed us. For those of you that don't understand King's English, it's in the past tense that he has blessed us. It isn't something that we're awaiting. It isn't something that we have to earn. It isn't an accomplishment that someday we hope to attain. But rather, it's something that we have. It's something that's been settled. It's something that is already done. He hath blessed us. Well, I know that you're sitting there tonight, and in the situation, the circumstances, perhaps, of your life, you're saying, I hear what you're saying, but let me just ask you this, Pastor. Does the blessing of God feel like suffering? Because suffering much, is a much closer description of what's going on in my life than what I would call blessing. So, is this a matter of, you know, the words here? You know, you say blessing, I say suffering. God calls it blessing, I call it pain and buffeting. What's the deal? If he hath blessed us, then why pain? Why suffering? What's going on? No, no, no. Listen. It isn't that God equates blessing with suffering or that because you are in a circumstance right now that you would call suffering, it's that you are not blessed. That's not the case at all. But rather, sometimes the process of God in preparing you to carry the blessing that he has intended for you is painful. It carries with it a sense of discomfort, for lack of a better term. It leaves you feeling somewhat unstable or uncertain within your life, the time as God prepares you. The book of First Peter, further on in your New Testament, was written to us, to the Christians, for the express purpose of addressing the place that suffering holds within our lives. He begins, Peter, in his epistle there to the church in chapter 1, verses 5 and 6, introducing the topic by simply saying that we are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last time. Wherein you greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, you are in heaviness through manifold temptations or various trials, tribulation if you would. He says, you rejoice in the salvation that we've received, but yet it's puzzling to you. You don't understand how to interpret joy and blessing in this context because for a season, for a reason, you're experiencing suffering. You're experiencing tribulation temptations. And Peter goes on in that five-chapter epistle there, and he describes suffering in great detail, and basically he comes to the conclusion that it's an inevitability in your life. That every child of God is going to go through seasons of trial. Seasons of temptation. Seasons of pain. Issues that cause suffering. But as Peter finishes his letter. He caps it off with this promise. In chapter 5 verse 10. He says, but the God of all grace. Who hath called us unto his eternal glory. By Jesus Christ. After that you have suffered a while. Make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. That ultimately the purpose of God in allowing suffering and tribulation in the life of his children is to prepare us and bring us to a place where we are established, where we are strengthened, and where we are settled and secure. That that is God's will. It's where we're headed, but the process of getting there sometimes involves a little bit of pain. When it's necessary. In Deuteronomy chapter 28. The book of Deuteronomy is the second giving of the law. As Moses recounts and re-kinda caps all that has happened to the children of Israel thus far. He says in Deuteronomy chapter 28 verse 2. He says that all of the blessings of God. He says are going to come on thee. And that they will listen overtake thee. I hope you can see it, because again, I, I don't know what I did with the post-its this week. didn't work out for me. But, but he says that the, the blessing of God is going to overtake thee. And I love that. The context is different, because in Deuteronomy, it's talking about under the law. And they could only be blessed under the law. We already know that our blessing is not because of the law, or because of our obedience, or because our blessing is if we are in Christ. If you're in Christ, you are blessed. If you are not in Christ... You're not blessed. It's very simple, New Testament terms. But the language is that the blessing will overtake you. And the picture is that of a wave. You know, we saw the pictures when the tsunami crashed into Japan earlier this year, you know. And you can imagine, you know, someone that was maybe in a boat or someone that was surfing or, you know, kind of near the shore. And all of a sudden you turn around and there is this incredible wave behind you. And you see it coming, and you immediately, you begin to swim. And it feels like the the depth of the water is getting lower and lower and lower and lower and lower. And you feel the current kind of pulling outward. And what's happening is that there's something that's about to overtake you. And it's the same picture that's given to us concerning the blessing of God. Listen, the Bible says that He hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. The reality is that there our seasons and times as God is preparing us for the blessing that's to come, where we feel the water getting shallower and shallower, where we feel the current of suffering getting more and more, the fear and uncertainty of what might be held by the future becomes more and more apparent to us. But the promise of God is that he hath blessed us. The blessing is going to come. It's already in motion and it will overtake us. Now we don't have time to look at it, but in Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 9, the Apostle Paul describes how he lost all things. He says, I suffered the loss of all things. He suffered. But he said, I count those things as rubbish because what I attained through that process of losing those things is that I gained Christ. And I count everything else rubbish that I might know him, that I might be found in him, that I might have more of him because I found that that's where life is. I know in my own life, the seasons of suffering, the things that, that I've gone through where I've questioned God and I've said, why, God, why are you allowing this? And at the time I couldn't see it, I couldn't understand it, but as I look back over those, those years and those issues, those things, I see so many things that were removed from my life. Not necessarily sinful things, but just things that were a distraction perhaps in me. Or things that that took up room within my life that now God has filled. And I look back and I'm so thankful. And I think of all the time that I wasted in useless things or in useless hobbies or useless whatever. And God so graciously removed those things without really me even knowing it and replaced it with him in such an incredible and wonderful way. You know, the blessing of God as it comes upon our life. The first thing that Paul tells us is that our blessing is secured. He hath blessed us. If you are in Christ Jesus, then you are blessed. But he goes on from there and he gives us the second thing. And that is that our blessing is set in heaven. Same verse. He said, he hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. That it isn't just that we're blessed, but that our blessing is set in heaven. Now you say, that's that's what I was waiting for. You were buttering us up. We all know that we are going to be blessed in heaven. Yes, heaven is a wonderful place. We're all looking forward to it. That's wonderful. But that does not help me now. No, 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 not so fast. Why? Because heaven and earth are not separate entities. There is a direct relationship between the two. God spoke from heaven and matter and substance appeared upon the earth. Moses, on Mount Sinai, saw the pattern. He saw the heavenly tabernacle laid out for him there. All of the gold, the ornaments, the precious stones, everything that made it up. And then God decreed and said, now that will be my tabernacle on earth. And that which was set in heaven would be manifested upon the earth as Moses would come down the mountain and construct the tabernacle. Samuel anointed young David. There was a spiritual decree that originated in heaven and as the oil fell upon the young man's head, it was settled in heaven that David would become the king of Israel. And it was only a matter of time and occurrence for the manifestation of that decree to come to pass in an earthly place. Jesus, when asked by his disciples, they said, teach us to pray, Lord. And he gave them that prayer that has been repeated so many times. Our Father, which art in heaven. But in that prayer, he said, thy will be done. How? On earth as it is, where? In heaven. It starts in heaven, and then it is manifested in earth. God speaks from heaven, it happens on earth. He decrees from heaven, David is coronated on earth. We pray, the answer is given in heaven, and it comes into earth. And the only thing that has to happen is that time and circumstance allows for it to come through. The point is that anything that is decreed in heaven will come to pass upon the earth. It may be delayed as Satan resists. We may have to wait as God makes his preparations, as things come into place, perhaps as our character is being adjusted. But listen, if you are blessed in heavenly places, then it's guaranteed that that blessing is going to come through on earth. It's been decreed. It will happen. It's going to overtake you. Now, an earthly blessing, that's temporary. If you're blessed on Earth, or if your blessing originates in Earth, then your blessing is very insecure. You may be blessed on Earth. You may, have, you may have been blessed financially in an incredible way. But listen, when financial markets give way or when currencies fail, then that blessing can be dissolved and no longer exists. You may be blessed with a very good job. You could have a very stable career, quote-unquote. But if the world turns the way the world is turning... Things change. Time goes by. People rise and fall. Corruption comes in. That job can be lost. And if that's where your blessing is, it's an unstable blessing because that blessing is not eternal. It doesn't last. It can't go with you. And no matter what it is in an earthly context, it can be lost. It can be stolen. It can be corrupted. It can be ruined. But if your blessing is set in heaven then it cannot be corrupted and it cannot be stolen. It can't be taken from you because the blessing is set in the heavenlies and therefore it translates to your life in a spiritual fashion and it goes with you. It doesn't go with the tides and the currents of culture and of this world, but it goes with you. I was having a conversation with a a close friend of mine and he has a, a very, very good job and he's got a very good position. But it's starting to interfere with his family life. And it's interfering with his spiritual life. It's interfering with his church life. And he's experiencing how his soul is being eroded because of this position that he has. But he finds himself in a struggle. He's in a very good position financially. He's in a very good place as far as positionally within the company that he's a part of. And so he was talking to me about the struggle that he has. And I said to him, I said, listen. Here's here's what you need to understand. Is that the blessing of your life is not in your job or in your position or your possessions or where you live. The blessing of God in your life is in you. It's set in heaven and therefore... You don't have to look at your job as being the the source of your security or the source of your stability or the source of your blessing. Your blessing's in heaven. God has blessed you with an incredible work ethic. He's blessed you with a mind, with gifts and wisdom. He's given you talents to do the things that you do. You're not bound to the company or to the place where you are for God to do in your life what he wants to do. It's in heaven. Go where you want to go. The blessing goes with you. It's not set in your job. It's set in heaven, see? And that's what Paul is telling us here, that he hath blessed us in heavenly places. And it's so much better to be blessed in a heavenly way. Because an earthly blessing will dissolve, it will fade, it comes to nothing. But a heavenly blessing cannot be corrupted, and it follows you where you go. And thus, to be in Christ and to be blessed in the heavenlies is so much better, far better Well, Paul goes on and gives us the third thing in verse 4. And the third thing is that in Christ, we discover that we've been chosen. He says, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. There is a great debate among Christians. They'll ask the question, well, which is it? Did I choose Christ, or did Christ choose me? Did I choose him, or did he choose me? Because I really thought that I was the one that did the choosing. I was sitting in the service, and the evangelist gave the call. He said, do you want to come to Christ, then rise to your feet and come to the podium. And I consciously made a choice and said, yes, I believe, I agree. And I rose to my feet and I came forward and gave my life to Christ. And as far as I can recall, it was me that did the choosing. But here, Paul is telling us that it was God that chose us. So, if it's God that chose us, then what was I doing when I rose to my feet and came forward? Did I choose him or did he choose me? Well, it was both. What do you mean? How, how can it be both? Well, in John chapter 6, verse 35, Jesus spoke these words. It says that Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. Well, that right there gives me the indication that I am left with a choice to make. That if I choose to come in my state of hunger, my state of need, That I will be accepted of him. So therefore the choice is mine. Is it not according to Jesus? Well wait. Verse 37. Just two verses later. Jesus says. All that the father gives me. Shall come to me. And him that comes to me. I will in no wise cast out. Well wait a minute there. The tone changes just a touch. Because in verse 37. It's first of all. God doing the choosing by drawing people to Christ. But it's also me choosing by coming to him so that he can't cast me out. So in verse 35, I'm doing the choosing. In verse 37, it's kind of a mix-up between the two. He drew me, but I chose him. But wait until you get to verse 44. John 6:44. He says, no man can come to me except the father which hath sent me draw him and I will raise him up at the last day. Well, now it's completely 180 from our first verse there, verse 37, or verse 35. Because here it says that no man can even come, you can't even make the decision to come to Christ unless you have first been drawn by the Father to make it. And then you come to Christ, and when you come to Christ, you are in no wise cast out. So, does that make everything clear? Do you understand how you got saved now? You're saying, well, wait a minute. No, I don't understand anything. I love the way Spurgeon put it. And I don't know if Spurgeon actually said this, but I could have said any name there and you would believe me. <laughs> but somebody said it, is that it's like a great archway. And on one side of the archway, the the the, the 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 phrase is inscribed into the stone, whosoever will, let him come. And that we make a choice and we come and we embrace Christ and we walk through that archway into the doors of salvation. But as we pass through, we turn and we look at the reverse side of that same archway and we see inscribed on the other side, Behold, I have chosen you from the foundation of the world. And it's an incredible way to simplify a very complex question. Did I choose him or did he choose me? You say, well, that's kind of cute, but how does God choose? Because if if, if God chooses some people and he doesn't choose others, then by elimination, that means that God appoints some people to go to hell. If he chooses some and doesn't choose others, then it just stands to reason that some people are just chosen to go to hell. Is that the way it works? No, no, not so fast. Because the Bible tells us how God chooses. The answer is in Romans chapter 8, verses 28 and 29. The Apostle Paul writes and he says that we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Well, there's that word again, the called, those that are chosen of him. And he describes that process in verse 29. He says, For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed into the image of his son. Here, Paul helps us to understand how God chooses. He chooses according to foreknowledge. See, the Bible says that God is omniscient. That means that he is all-knowing. There's nothing that God doesn't know. You know, people say, well, you know, can God make a rock so big he can't move it? And they try to, like, somehow trick God into not knowing something or not being able to do something. But the Bible tells us that God knows All things. And according to that power of foreknowledge that he has, he can look over the chronicles of human history from one end of it all the way to the other, and he can know in his omniscience all of the people that are going to choose him. And he can choose them. That person's going to respond. That person's going to respond. That person's going to come to me. I choose them. Because God allows us to have free will. If God didn't allow people to have free will, then salvation wouldn't be according to love. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. If it's not free will, then it isn't love because that means that God is just turning on a switch inside of you without you knowing it. This one's chosen, this one's chosen, this one's chosen. You're not responding to God's love. You're not loving him for who he is. You're just simply a robot. I love you, God. I give my life to you. But that's not love. God made man because he wanted us to know his love and enjoy him forever. And so therefore, he leaves the choice of coming to him to us. And when we make that choice, we discover that we were chosen from the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. You say, well, pastor, am I chosen? Choose him. Choose him. And you'll find out. I don't want to choose him. Well, then you're not chosen. (laughs) Well, what were we chosen for? Number four, if you're taking notes. Same verse. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. He says that he's chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. That we should be holy and without blame before him. In love. Number four is that we should be declared holy, innocent, and beloved. Holy is defined very simply as being set apart for God. The picture is of that of somebody who perhaps conquers a certain territory and takes a spoil. And the captain of the army chooses the best of the spoil, like David did. You can read in, you know, towards the end of 1 Samuel, as David goes in and, and, you know, gets back what the enemy, the Amalekites, took from Ziklag, and he spoils the Amalekites, and he takes the best of what they had, and he said, this is David's spoil. He sets it aside for himself. And that's the context with which it says that we were chosen in him to be called holy. Is that God looks at those that have come to him, those that have chosen him, and he rounds us up and he sets us aside and he says, this bunch is for me. This is mine. I've chosen it for myself. We've been chosen to be set aside to be holy before him. The opposite of holy is profane. Anything that is unholy or not set apart for God, is considered or condemned or called profane by Him. And so therefore, if you just think it through rationally, if we are called holy, it means that we are not profane, and because we cannot be profane and holy at the same time, it means that we also have been made innocent. And that's the second thing that he says right there, that we are to be holy and without blame. That in order for us to be holy, we have to have somehow been justified. Oh, getting ahead of myself. But he says that we are without blame, and then he goes on, and he says that we are loved. And we understand the context of our salvation that is completely a work of God's love. He didn't save us because we deserved it. He didn't save us because we earned it. He saved us because he loved us. Because God is love. For God so loved the world that he gave. In Christ, we're chosen to be declared holy, innocent, and beloved. Number five is that in Christ, we are legally declared the sons and daughters of God. Verse five, it says, Having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself to the good pleasure of his will. In other words, it was the good pleasure of His will to adopt us as sons and daughters. Now, there are, uh, there is a small handful of times in the Old Testament that God is referred to as Father. But every time that happens, it is always in the context of creation. Like we would say, Mother Earth and Father Time, you know. And and, and it's not spoken blasphemously, but it's just used in that context in the Old Testament. That yes, He's the Father. He is the originator, the initiator of all that is. And so therefore, He holds that position of Father of all that is made. But it is never used in the context of family. It is only in the context of creation, distantly father as creator now it wasn't until jesus came and spoke to his disciples of the new intimacy that they can have with god when you pray jesus said say our father which are in heaven not in the context of creation but now in the context of family and once you cross over from a position of being accountable to god as your creator to where now you are related to God by the right of adoption, it carries a completely different context. The meaning is completely different. Father takes on a whole new meaning. See, if He is Father just based on creation, then that means that we're accountable to Him. We're subservient to Him. He's distant. He's detached. We're being monitored. It's like this is one great big Petri dish, and God just observing it from afar off and seeing what's going to happen. That's the Creator. That's... The accountable, you know, nature that we have before him. But if he's our father, then what does that mean? First of all, it means that we're included. Luke chapter 12, verse 32, Jesus said to his disciples, It is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. That if he's adopted us, if he's made us his own, if we're part of his family, then first of all, it means that we're included. He's not making us jump through hoops and compete in rituals and try to attain somehow and earn His favor, but rather He says, welcome into my family. You're included. It's my good pleasure to give you the kingdom. That's my will. It's what I want for you. If He's our Father, it also means that we're beautified. Matthew chapter 7, verse 11, Jesus speaking of prayer... He said, if you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give good things to those that ask? Which of us that are fathers don't want what's best for our children? We want to beautify them, especially when we're pleased with them. We want to do everything we can to bless them, to beautify, to give them the things that they need, the things that they ask. If he's our Father, it means that we'll be provided for Matthew chapter 6 verses 31 and 32 Jesus declares and he says therefore take no anxious thought for your life what you will eat what you will drink what you will put on for all these things the Gentiles seek after but your heavenly Father knows that you have need of these things the promise is that he's going to take care of you he's your father he's going to provide for you not only included beautified and provided for but he also is committed to us to prepare us for all that will be and all that he desires us to be hebrews chapter 12 verse 5 it says and you have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children my son despise not thou the chastening of the lord nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. That word chastening, we, we cower at it. We shy away from it. We go, ooh, chastening, pain, ah, uh, you know, who wants that? You know, that's not the part of fathering that we want to think about. But the word doesn't simply mean the blow of the rod, you know, upon the seed of understanding, that kind of a thing. But the word chastening also carries with it the context of the full preparation and nurturing of a child the full preparation and nurturing of a child, that it's through God's chastening hand that we are taught, we're instructed, we're encouraged, we're brought up in the way that is right so that we can be prepared for a life of godliness that brings him glory and is a blessing to us. You can go on and you can read verses 5 through 10 there in Hebrews 12, and he talks about how as a father, God is committed to us. He's not a drill sergeant or like Captain Von Trapp, you know, from the, the, the sound of music, you know, it's like blowing a whistle and like trying to just get us to walk in order kind of a thing. But that he's committed to us. He loves us. And the father relationship also goes without saying is that we'll be protected. Which one of us as fathers would not protect our children? God forbid that anything should ever happen or that someone should ever try in any way to harm any of our children. Which of us as fathers would sit back and say, oh, well, let's just see how they handle this. If you want to see wrath, you know. God promises as our father. And it's such an incredible thing. You know, we read over the word that we've been adopted. And we just go, okay, well, we're adopted. But no, 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 no. Do you understand what it means? That he is our father. He's not just holding us accountable as his creation, but he's adopted us into his family, in his son Christ. And notice what it says concerning this adoption. It says that it was his good pleasure. It was the good pleasure of his will. Many of us, we think, well, you know, God just tolerates me. He loves them. I know he loves them. But me, he's, I'm the problem child, the black sheep, if you would. And, you know, yeah, he accepts me and I believe, but oh, goodness. No, no. It was the good pleasure of his will. If he chose you. And you're in Christ. And you're seated in heavenly places. Then he is pleased with you. It was the good pleasure of his will. Though perhaps there's chastening going on in your life. Number six. In verse six is that we are accepted. It says to the praise of the glory of his grace. Wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. Now. We commonly ask people the question, we say, have you accepted Christ? You know, or we say, I accepted Christ in, you know, 2001 or whenever it was. We And we use that word like we accepted Christ. You know, yeah, I accepted Christ. You know, he he was persistent and, uh, you know, and, and he kept knocking and people kept asking and, you know, and he was very persistent and finally I did it. I accepted Christ and we say that. And we rejoice, we say, amen, you know, it's miraculous, new life, you're born again, awesome. But the bigger miracle and the bigger amazement is not that you accepted Christ, it's that Christ accepted you. That's the bigger miracle. I think of the Queen of Sheba. You know, in the days of Solomon, on the southern portions of the continent of Africa, there was the Queen of Sheba. She was the, the monarch, or the what do you call a woman monarch, you know, uh, whatever she was, you know, over this region. And she heard of the fame and the wisdom and the fortunes of Solomon up in Jerusalem. And so she said, you know what, I want to go and see if what I'm hearing about this Solomon weighs out with what I'm hearing about him. And so she prepares this caravan and she gets her camels and her spices and her gold and her precious jewels and, and everything, you know, that she can do to go and impress this King Solomon. And she makes her way up from Southern Africa and she comes up to Jerusalem and it tells us there in second Chronicles chapter nine, verses three through six, that when she came into the region and saw Solomon's kingdom, this was her response. It says, And when the queen of Sheba had seen the wisdom of Solomon, and the house that he had built, and the meat of his table, and the sitting of his servants, and the attendance of his ministers and their apparel, his cupbearers also and their apparel, and his ascent by which he went up into the house of the Lord, there was no more spirit in her. And she said to the king, It was a true report which I heard in mine own land of thine acts and of thy wisdom. Howbeit I believed not their words. Until I came and mine eyes had seen it. And behold the one half of thy greatness. Of thy wisdom was not told me. For thou exceedest all the fame that I heard. And here's this woman. She's much like us. We hear about this greater than Solomon. We hear about this King Jesus. The blessed God. And we as captain of our lives, you know, king of our domain, you know, we say, you know what? I'm going to come to Christ and I'm going to prepare my best. I'm going to get my spices and my camels and my gold. And man, Jesus is going to be impressed because he's never seen someone like me. He's never had someone who's going to be so on fire like me. He's never had someone who will be such a faithful servant as me. I'm going to blow his mind, we think. and We come to Christ. He comes to us. He moves into our hearts. He moves into our lives. He begins to do His work. He begins to manifest His glory. He begins to open to us the truth of His word. He begins to speak to us of His kingdom, of what's coming, the streets that are paved with gold. We begin to grasp and understand the concept of eternal life and all that it carries and all that it is. We begin to see ourselves for the wretches that we are, and it magnifies the glory of His grace. And little by little the impression that we desired to make with our greatness and our faithfulness begins to fade as we realize the purity of his love, the awesomeness of his power, the eternal nature of his person and his kingdom. And it causes us like the Queen of Sheba to say, there's no more spirit in me, for the half of it was not told me of what he was. I thought it was impressive that I was accepting him. But the thing that's really impressive is that he accepted us. That he should bow himself so low that he would look at the estate of some lowly, sinful wretch like me and be willing to to receive me unto himself, to take me unto himself. What kind of God? So glorified, so holy, would look down and see us and say, I'm love, I love them enough, I'm gonna give them all. We're accepted in the beloved. What an incredible privilege. And then number seven, in verse seven, is that we have redemption. In whom we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of sins according to the riches of of His grace. Now, in our culture, there are two different definitions for the word redemption. The first is selling our garbage and getting the base value for the raw materials. We bring aluminum cans back to the AMP, or we save up a pile of scrap metal and bring it back to the scrapyard and we redeem it. You know, we get what we can for our garbage, you know. That's the first definition of it. And, you know, sometimes that that is kind of what it's like that we've been redeemed, is that God just looks at us, he sees, well, there's not much there, but I'll do something with it, you know. (laughs) But that's not what the word is. That's not the context of the redemption that Paul is speaking of here in verse 7. The second definition is the restoration of something to its original or its intended glory. And that is a far different cry than simply selling something to get the price of garbage. When God made man, he intended man to be an expression of himself. The Bible says that man was made in the image of God, that he was created for fellowship with God. That his intended purpose was to know God and to enjoy him forever. And to bring him glory through his beauty and his behavior. But when sin entered the human race, coming through Adam and passing on to all of us, that corruption entered in. The beauty, the glory that we were intended to have was corrupted by sin. What was supposed to be glory and beauty became selfishness, vanity, loathsomeness. And rather than be an expression of heaven, an expression of glory, the human race became an expression of hell. We were made in God's image, But we were ruined by the corruption of sin. And here we are told that in Christ Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. The blood provided a means whereby our sin could be taken away. And that which corrupted man can now be removed from man. And thus it redeems us back to our initial purpose, what God made us to be. In Christ Jesus, we can again be people that have fellowship with God, knowing Him, walking with Him, experiencing Him. We're able to know and enjoy Him forever, which was our intended purpose in Eden. We're able to be a true expression of who God is and what He intended. And we're able to bring Him glory by allowing Him to work in and through our lives. It's not something that we earn or something we attain. It's something that God does within us at the moment that we're placed in Christ. We're redeemed. We're brought back to our initial purpose and that which what we were created for. You say, I understand that. That all makes sense. It's very basic Bible doctrine. You say, I understand. My problem is not redemption in the context of salvation. My problem is redemption post-salvation. Is that if I look over the years that I've been in Christ, it just seems that it's been marked with nothing but failure. It seems that every possible place that I had a decision to make, I chose the wrong thing. That every place where there was a fork in the road and I was supposed to go left, I went right, and now I find myself 20 years into this Christian faith, and I do not think that my life is an expression of what God initially intended it to be. I'll never be what I could have because of what's happened in my life since I've come to Christ. Listen, listen again to what the apostle says to us in verse 7. He says, In whom we have redemption. He does not say that we had redemption and you better have gotten it right the first time. He doesn't say you were given a new start and I hope that you really chose the right things along the way, but this is in the continual tense that we have redemption. In Christ Jesus because of the blood of Christ. In the 18th chapter of Jeremiah, God tells Jeremiah to go to the potter's house because he's going to speak to him there. And so Jeremiah goes down and he sees the potter and he's just getting started. He takes a lump of clay and he puts it upon the wheel. And as he begins to turn the wheel and work the clay and with with art, art, you know, what's that word? Skillful hand, he begins to work it and make it into something. He's watching as the master potter shapes and and develops and molds and, and it's a thing of mystery, a thing of beauty that the potter is crafting upon the wheel. But it seems that there's a wrinkle, a furrow in his brow. Because as he works this clay and begins to mold this instrument, something is resisting him. Something is keeping him from accomplishing his purpose. There's a flaw, not with the potter, but with the clay. There's something happening that's keeping him from making it the way he wants. And so, lo and behold, he's getting to a certain point in crafting and shaping this thing. And Jeremiah observes that the vessel becomes marred in the hand of the potter. It collapses in on itself. The clay, some of it, falls off the wheel. And what was being developed, what was being shaped, becomes marred. And the initial intention, so seemingly, is never accomplished by the hand of the potter. But the potter doesn't give up. He doesn't say, ah, this is stupid clay. I can't do anything with it. He picks up the clay that's been broken, that's fallen down. He puts it back together and he puts it on the wheel and he begins to make something else. And God says, Jeremiah, do you understand? Am I not able to do with the house of Israel as this potter has done with this clay? It says there in Jeremiah that he took it and he made it again. He made it again. The only thing that God cannot use is that which is not given into his hand to do something with it. If it's yielded to him, then he can use it. In Israel, there was a piece of land not far from Jerusalem called the potter's field. And it was the place where people that worked with pottery or owned pottery that became marred, that became broken, and the clay was no longer useful for anything, they would throw the broken pieces of the clay into this field. And it was good for nothing else. It was nothing but scattered pieces of broken clay that made up this potter field, really a useless piece of real estate. When Judas Iscariot sold the Lord Jesus Christ for 30 pieces of silver, The Bible tells us that he brought the money back into where the priests were gathered. And he said, I don't want this money. Take it back. And they said, yeah, that's your business. We don't want anything to do with it either. And it says that Judas took the bag and he threw the money there on the ground in the presence of the priests and the leaders of Israel. And he ran out and he hanged himself. Well, they, not knowing what to do with that money and being bound by restrictions because it was the price of blood they weren't allowed to put it into the treasury of the temple they said well here's what we're going to do with it we're going to buy the potter's field and you read those verses there in matthew and you just pass over and say oh maybe that was a good move maybe it wasn't we'll see if real estate goes up or if it goes down listen listen to how profound it is the money that represented the value of the lord jesus's life that money represented the life of jesus was used to buy all of the broken, useless pieces of pottery that had been thrown on a useless piece of land. And isn't that exactly what the blood of Jesus Christ has done in your life and in mine? We're nothing but broken pieces of clay. And yet God looks at us and he says, am I not able to do with you as this potter? You say my life is marred. I was heading in one direction and it didn't work out. I've made bad choices. Things have gone bad. Listen, yield it to God because God, the master potter, will look at your life and he will say, make it again. Make it again. And what he is able to do is exceedingly and abundantly above all that we could ask or even think. We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Now, as we close, we have looked at seven things that we have as those that are in Christ. And I don't know if you've noticed this, but it it jumped out to me as I was going through and looking at all of these things. I don't know if you noticed, but doesn't it seem like they're in reverse order? I mean, Paul gives us this list, but he gives us the list backwards. He starts in heaven and he finishes with the blood and redemption. It seems to me that if he was trying to make us understand what's taking place in our life, he would have flipped it over. Perhaps this introduction, this opening, should have sounded more like this. That according to the riches of his grace, we have forgiveness of sins through the blood. Thus, we have redemption. This means that we are now accepted in the beloved to the praise of the glory of his grace. And because we are accepted, we are also adopted into the family of God. Which means we have been declared holy, blameless, and beloved. All of this shows us that we were chosen by him from the foundation of the world. Thus, our blessing is established in heaven. Now, that makes a lot more sense to me, the reader, as I'm looking at that, because that's where I started in the Christian life. I started by his grace being revealed to me, the blood being applied, my life being redeemed. And from there, I went to the place where, okay, all right, I'm understanding this thing. I've been redeemed. I'm accepted. I'm accepted. He accepts me. And then I came to the understanding that I'm adopted, that I'm actually a part of his family. Accepted, adopted. In order to be adopted... He sees me as holy, blameless. I'm loved. And then I realize, wow, I've been chosen. And then someday, hopefully, I'll get it. I'm blessed in heaven, in heavenly places. My blessing is secure. Now, that makes sense to me. Why does Paul start in heaven? Here's why. Listen, because the Christian life starts at the finish line. The glory of this gospel, this grace that we've been given by him is that the moment You receive Christ. The moment you come and you say, yes, Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I need you. I cannot save myself. From that moment, it isn't a progression of, okay, you will reach spiritual maturity when you climb the seven-step ladder. No, no, no. You start seated in the heavens. Your blessing is set. On the cross, Jesus hung there, and the last words that he spoke were, it is finished. To I paid in full, done. The price is paid. It's completed, finished. He didn't say, I gave them a good start. Now let's see what they do with it. It's done. And thus Paul starts in the absolute best place for you and I as he begins describing to us what we have in Jesus Christ. Heaven. Our names are written there. Our blessing is established. Our destiny is secure. So our response as believers in Jesus Christ is not what we do now It's simply do we believe it or not Can we receive the thing that paul said can we embrace the fact that we are seated in heavenly places in christ Can we stop doubting the fact that god loves us? Can we stop thinking that i'm only half accepted one of these days? I'll be wholly accepted when I get this right or that right Can we look at him and honestly look him in the eye and say father? I know that you're committed to me. I know that you're going to provide. I know that you're going to beautify me. I know that you're going to complete the work that you began. I know it. Can we say, though the days are dark and the tribulation seems heavy, I know I'm blessed. That the blessing will overtake me. That his work within my life will be accomplished. If you don't know Christ here tonight, I want you to know That you're here tonight because you are being drawn by the Father. That he loves you so much. That he called you into this place tonight to hear the highest truth in all of the universe. In what he did in sending his son. And that by believing in him. Coming to him by embracing the gift of his salvation. He will give you eternal life. And it's your responsibility to make a decision. To call upon him. To come to him. And what you will find when you come is that you are accepted. You're embraced. You'll be forgiven. And I guarantee you, your life will not make sense until you do that. I remember the wrestling match that was associated with making that decision. I knew that God was real long before I was willing to raise my hand or confess out loud that i wanted to be a follower of him because there was a difference between stirring the things around intellectually and then acting upon them with my will and my volition you may be facing that battle in your life where you are right now is where you realize that there's something happening you know you don't have the answers but yet for some reason you can't bring yourself to make that decision i urge you listen Your life will begin to make sense. You cannot steer your own course. But if you come to him, you'll find that he'll embrace you. Life will begin to make sense. He'll begin to work all things together for good. You'll know the reason why you exist. If you don't know Jesus Christ personally, I ask, please come to him. He asks, come to me. I'll give you rest. Let's stand and pray together. Father, we just thank you for your word tonight. We ask you to give us understanding. That you would continue to speak to us. You would help us to believe and to receive the things that we've heard. And that our lives would reflect your existence in us. And your work within us. We just give thanks to you tonight, Father. Please be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen.